Good morning, everybody. For those who are listening, welcome to Ark of Hope podcast, and we are continuing our study of Revelation, and we're enjoying it every step of the way. So we're in chapter 6 this morning, and we're going to talk today about the four horsemen of sin's curse. Generally, they're called the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and you can call them that if you want. They're not called that in Revelation 6. They're just called the horsemen. But... They do represent different aspects of sin's curse, and so that's why I call them that. But that's the title of today's message. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. So we talked last week about the triumph of the Lamb, Jesus taking the seven-sealed scroll, and today we're going to see the opening of the first four seals. We're not going to get into seal 5, 6, and 7. We're going to wait on those. We're going to take our time, even today as I was studying the four horsemen. I'm looking at my notes. I got one, two, three. I got nearly four pages of notes here. There's a good chance that we are not going to finish all of this today. There's a possibility, okay? If it has to be separated into part one, part two, so be it. I don't want to rush through scripture. But let's read verses one through eight, and then we will start discussing it. Revelation 6, verse 1. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. That's a very solemn way to end the passage, but today I'm going to try to not only explain the text, but I'm also going to show how we can read this sort of thing, we can see the stage being set for this sort of thing around us, but yet still have hope in the midst of it all. So the first question that you're going to notice on your notes has to do with when these seals take place. Okay, so that's a really big question. Before we get into the application or the spiritual principles of this text, we really need to know when they take place. So there are three views that I have found are held by pre-tribulational people. Now, if you listen to our series, our general end time series about the end, end times, that's redundant. But if you listen to that series, then you know that I'm a pre-tribulational believer. And that's the framework from which I approach the text. But there are a couple, a few different ways that pre-tribulational teachers will regard these seals. Okay, so I'm going to go through the three and I'm going to suggest you which one I think is most logical, fits the text best. But this is one of those things I'm not dogmatic on. 
Okay, I'm a little bit more confident in the pre-trip rapture as far as the placement of these seals in relation to the rapture as something I'm not quite as confident on. But let's look at the views. The first view is that these seals are open before the 70th week of Daniel and before the rapture. So let's talk about Daniel's 70th week. In Daniel chapter 9, there are 70 weeks. This gives us basically the most important prophetic timeline in the whole Bible. And it's crucial because when we're reading in Revelation, we're going to go back to Daniel's 70th week often. But essentially, we have 69 weeks that you start counting down from about 445 BC, okay, when the decree was made to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And that was made during the, the reign of Artaxerxes. From that point to the time of Christ, you have the 69 sevens, okay, or 69 weeks. And when Jesus arrives, it says in Daniel 9 that he was cut off. It says that soon after he was cut off, the temple would be destroyed. That took place in 70 AD, 40 years after he died on the cross. And then there's this gap where the last week, the 70th week, seven years are unfulfilled. So 2,000 years ago, this wasn't fulfilled. So we're living in that gap right now. So prophetic gaps are in Scripture occasionally. In Isaiah chapter 9, when it talks about Jesus being born, unto us a child is born, a son is given, and then it says the government shall be upon his shoulders. Well, there's a big gap between the child being born and the government being on his shoulders. So we have a gap like that in Daniel 9. So when does that last seven or last week find its fulfillment? Well, it's going to happen according to Daniel 9 whenever the Antichrist signs a covenant or a treaty with Israel and it's going to last for seven years in uh, in purpose or design, but it will be broken halfway through. Okay, so it will be a seven-year covenant, but halfway through, the Antichrist is going to break that covenant. And all the details of that, we're not going to talk about that today because we got so much else to look at. But um, that's going to ha happen halfway through the tribulation. So that covenant hasn't been made yet. So generally, that's what... In time, scholars will refer to the tribulation as. They'll say it's Daniel's 70th week or the tribulation. Some might split hairs and say, well, technically the great tribulation that Jesus talks about in Matthew 24 is the second half of Daniel's 70th week. Okay, But I'm not going to split hairs this morning. So the tribulation, when I refer to it, I understand the tribulation as referring to the seven years of Daniel's 70th week. That the Antichrist is going to enter into a treaty with Israel. And then halfway through, he's going to break that treaty. So, Sorry, the, the agreement that, that Clinton tried to negotiate with him, the odds were for seven years. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, there have been many times in history where it appeared that it was very, very close, like it's about to happen, mm -hmm. and it just wasn't the time. Right. You know, God's, he's in charge. Uh, the devil, I'm sure, is eagerly, eagerly anticipating this time. And uh, I, I personally believe that he's he's got to have somebody you know, in his sights to fulfill that role as the Antichrist because he doesn't know when the rapture is going to happen. I mean, he doesn't know. No one knows except God and and Jesus no doubt knows because he's ascended to heaven and he has all authority in, in heaven and earth given to him. Even in his, uh, his time here on earth during the incarnation at his first coming, he didn't know because he was taking on that role as a servant. But uh, now he's not in the role of servant anymore. He's in the role of king. And so uh, the devil doesn't know, though. We don't know. And so he's got to have someone set aside and prepared for that time. But uh, 
As far as when it happens, we don't know. As far as the seals are concerned, though, that's something we can speculate a little bit more confidently about. So the first view is that these seals are open before the tribulation okay, and before the rapture. Now, we are before the tribulation and we are before the rapture right now. So some people would say the seals are opening right now. Like Jesus is opening them as we speak. Yes. And some people, they point that out. They would say it looks like, you know, we have famine. We have uh, pestilence. That's right. We have the war. Um, we have the rise of what's that? Yes. Inflation. So financial hardship. We see the rise of powers as they are depicted in many different biblical books, the revived Roman empire. It looks like Europe, the European union. Uh, we have Gog and Magog. Okay. And some people see in the red horse, Gog and Magog. I'm not sure I, I agree with that view, but I can understand why some people would look at our current events and say, Maybe the seals are being opened right now. Um, some people would push it back further. They would say the first seal opened is the resurrection. I saw this view represented online as I was researching this. Some people would argue that the rider on the white horse is Jesus. And so that's the resurrection. And following the resurrection, we have these other seals. But I would argue that though we have the stage being set for these seals, uh, it seems like these are unique events that I don't think you can put them at any other time in history. Uh, we've always had war. We've always had pestilence. You know, we've always had lots of things like that, okay, ever since the fall. But it seems like they are going to come to a head like they've never been before in the tribulation. So some people, they would agree with me on that. They would say, well, we're living in a unique time period. And I couldn't disagree with them on that. And they would say, well, maybe the seals are being opened now. There are a couple people uh, that I'll mention here. Uh, Derek and his wife, um, Sharon, I think it's Sharon Gilbert. They do a series on Revelation called Unraveling Revelation. And uh, they work at Skywatch TV. I definitely don't agree with them on everything, but I, I think that they're people who love the Lord and they have some good insights. And so... I listened to what they had to say online about this, and they believe that the seals are being opened now. And they think that, you know, the seals lead up to the rapture. They would argue that the sixth seal is the rapture. Mm. So whenever we have that great earthquake and the sky opens up, they would say that's the rapture. Everything after that would be Daniel's 70th week. So that's their view. Mm. But the reason I can't agree, okay, I can respect the view, but the reason I can't agree with the view is because the whole chronology of Revelation Chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5, all of it seems to follow a, a very simple, uh, simplistic, um, very simplistic timeline. So you have chapter 2 and chapter 3, the, the letters to the churches, the seven churches, and that represents the church age. And you have the Laodicean church, which clearly represents where we're at today. And then you have Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, and I'll just read it again. After this, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven. One sat on the throne. Now it mentions in this same chapter, and we've talked about this already, but just to review, it mentions the 24 elders and they have their crowns. So not only does Revelation 4, 1 and 2 sound like the rapture, the door in heaven being opened. We see this door opening again halfway through the tribulation. Whenever the two witnesses die and they're raised, heaven opens. 
We see the door opening again in Revelation 19 when Jesus comes back. So to me, it seems to be significant that the door in heaven opens and John is taken from where he is on the island of Patmos and in spirit, if not in body, he's taken into heaven. This seems to be a type of the rapture. But if that's not enough, I think that's pretty compelling. When I read it for the first time, by the way, like just the plain sense of scripture, when I read Revelation chapter four, verse one, without anybody telling me that this was the rapture, I thought it was the rapture initially, just comparing the language of scripture. Uh, so to me, it has the plain sense going forward. But on top of that, you also have these people sitting before God with their crowns, and we will not receive our crowns until the judgment seat of Christ. And so the fact that we have rapture language and we have people already wearing their crowns strongly suggests that this is after the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, Paul talks about that time of reward as the day of Christ. It's not something that happens now. It's something that happens eschatologically in the end times. And so even people who are in heaven today, while they're enjoying the comforts of heaven, they have not received their reward. That's going to be done with a grand ceremony. And that grand ceremony won't happen until the full tally of church-age saints has come in and have been taken up in the rapture. So based on those two observations, I think the idea that the seals are opened before the rapture, it just doesn't fit with that basic chronology. The second view does fit with it. And that's why I'll say this morning that view two and three, it's a toss up for me. I really see compelling points from either side. And uh, I, I acknowledge that we can't know everything this side of glory. So I, I'm going to, at the end of it all, I'll tell you which one I lean towards. But number two says that the seals are open before the tribulation and after the rapture. Okay, so they would say that you have the tribulation starting with the Antichrist signing that treaty. Before that is going to be the rapture. It's a pre-tribulational view. But there could very well be, and many prophecy scholars have believed this for many years, so it's not a recent idea. Many believe that there is some sort of gap that takes place between the rapture and the signing of the treaty. How long will the gap be? Well, most people would be pretty conservative about it, and they would say maybe days, weeks. That's about as far as they go. Other people would say, well, it could be months. It could be even a couple years. Now, pushing that gap too far is not acceptable because we have the rapture described in 1 Thessalonians 4 and the day of the Lord described in 1 Thessalonians 5. The day of the Lord is judgment on earth. So to make this, this gap really, really big, okay, you would have a hard time reconciling that with 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, which seems to, to suggest there's going to be a sudden destruction coming upon the world after the rapture happens. So if, it, if it's a gap and you see this judgment being put off for two years, three years, all right, uh, that's that's within reason. But if we start saying, okay, a couple decades, we, we start to lose the imminency of the day of the Lord in its relationship with the rapture. Rapture, judgment. Rapture, tribulation. We see that presented by Paul and Thessalonians. Rapture is very much a confusing Yes, and so because of that, um, I think a gap is reasonable, and there has to be some sort of gap unless one wants to say that the treaty is signed like literally one second after the rapture happens, you know, uh, and that's probably not reasonable. It's possible, but mo most people, sorry, you're good. Jesus takes us at the point that they are about to sign the, the yeah. treaty. Well, it says that the, the Antichrist won't be revealed until after the restrainer is removed, so the logical order, even if it, even if it's like a, a very quick time or a very 
what am I trying to say? Very quickly after the rapture happens, the, the treaty could be signed. Yes, uh, that's possibility. But there has to be a rapture first because the restrainer is removed and then the Antichrist is revealed. We're never going to be able to say, you're the Antichrist. We're not even going to be able to say that a split second before the rapture happens, apparently, because it says he's not revealed until the rapture happens. So the rapture happens and all these people disappear and everything breaking down. There'd be nobody to work and nobody to do this and do that. They would be clamoring for someone. To yes, order yes, everything. yes. So how long would, would it take for the Antichrist to secure power? I think the Antichrist is around today. Uh, just, we just don't know who he is. And I'm not going to indulge in the speculation of who I think he is. I do have some ideas. <laughs> yeah, but but I but I don't I don't know uh, who he is. Nobody does because the rapture hasn't happened yet. But I think that there has to be some amount of time for the Antichrist to consolidate power and to rise to the head of things and the temple being rebuilt. Technically, these things could happen. Now, the Antichrist could rise to power and us not know who he is. People are rising to power all the time. The temple could be rebuilt right now, and the rapture could still take some time before it arrives, okay? Uh, there's nothing to say that the temple will happen after the rapture takes place first. But anyways, this view, it it does hold some merit in that it allows time for a lot of things to happen. So um, as it is, we do have things in the Bible like Psalm 83 and Gog and Magog. And I think Gog and Magog, I don't think you can put it in the tribulation. We've talked about this already. I think that it's got to be before the tribulation. It's got to be at least three and a half years before the tribulation starts. Because they're not going to be spoiling their enemies while they're fleeing in the wilderness in the second half of the tribulation. The Jews won't. So that means that Gog and Magog, if it hasn't happened yet, well... You know, it could be that it happens within this gap period. So the rapture happens, and then that gives time for Gog and Magog to happen, and for three and a half years of spoiling the enemies and, and burning, you know, the fuel or whatever, you know, the burning is a reference to there. All that stuff could happen during that time period. Um, so I think that, that that gives you a little bit of cushion to work with, I suppose. Um, however, I think that the third view... And let's look at the third view, because I can't really talk about the second without the third one. The third one says the seals are open during the 70th week. So they would say that all these seals that we've just read about and we're about to discuss, um, that they happen within the first quarter of the tribulation. And so the four horsemen of the apocalypse would be taking place right after the signing of the treaty. And uh, this, again, is after the rapture. This one, I do think it has the straightforward sense of the text on its side. So I lean towards this one. I'm not decided. I could be wrong. I'm not dogmatic about it. But I, I do think that there's a principle at work here. Y'all may have heard of it before. It's called Occam's Razor. Occam's Razor is basically the simplest explanation is preferred. Okay, it's more likely to be true. If you multiply, you know, lots of um, speculation and uh, lots of causes, lots of factors, then it gets really messy. It's best to just assume that the simplest explanation is the right one. And and I think that that's a good principle. It's not always true, but I think it's a good principle to work with. Uh, we approach God's word rather than reading into it a lot of complicated factors. We should just take it at face value. And so the traditional view that places the seals in the first quarter of the tribulation, I think it it makes the most sense. But the gap is... It is possible, and we'll just find out 
I mean, we're going to be in heaven for that time. <laughs> so, um, you know, we're not going to have a problem with whatever happens because we're going to be with the Lord. But I do think that the second view could work as well. Now, last thing I'll say about the second view before we move on um, is that the second view says that not only are Christians saved from the day of the Lord. So this view is held by Bill Solace. If you want somebody who defends the view, um, he would say that the day of the Lord, the tribulation starts at the sixth seal. So he would say that the wrath of God officially begins at the sixth seal. Now, when you read the sixth seal, that kind of makes sense. Okay. He's got a point. And he would argue that what happens prior to that is more of the lawlessness of man. And he would say that we're saved from that too. So Bill Solace is a super pre-tribber in a sense. He would say, not only are we promised not to be on the earth during the wrath of God, which he would date from the sixth seal on, he would say we're also promised to not go through the period of lawlessness, which is described in 2 Thessalonians 2. So he says, if you think it's lawless right now, it's going to be even more lawless when the Antichrist rises to power. And he thinks that his rise to power is being restrained by the Holy Spirit in the church. And so when the rapture happens, that's when lawlessness is really going to break loose. And he would say that lawlessness is what we see here in these four horsemen. Okay, so the rider on the white horse is the Antichrist. From him comes war. From the war comes famine. Uh, from the famine comes pestilence and disease. And, and all of this stuff is going to happen before the wrath of God is officially revealed and set loose at the sixth seal. So again, I, I can't tell you which one's right. I would only encourage you to study scripture on your own. I was sold on the gap for a long time. Okay. Like I even wrote a master's paper on it, defending it. And uh, I thought that it was ingenious, but now I'm just, I have a lot of other people over here telling me, well, here's the traditional view and this is what it has going for it. And uh, I respect what they have to say too. So I'm not sold either way, but if I'm having to make a choice, then I would say go with the plain sense of the text. And the, pl and the plain sense of the text is that we have the rapture happening in chapter four, the beam of seat taking place soon after the crown's being given. Chapter 5, Jesus comes up and he gets the scroll, and the tribulation officially begins with those seals being opened up. And I think that makes sense, too, because the first rider looks like the Antichrist, and he's carrying a bow. And the word for bow in Greek is often used to refer to the rainbow as well as to the material weapon, okay? And so the bow, rainbow covenant, it starts to ring a bell, the Antichrist making a covenant, with the Jewish people. That could very well be highlighted here uh, in an indirect way uh, in light of Daniel chapter 9. So anyways, um, that's all I'm going to say about the end times chronology. And uh, we're going to look, probably all we have time for today is, is one, one of the horsemen. We'll talk about the first one, the white horse, because this is probably the biggest one and maybe the most debated one. So in verse 2, I saw and behold a white horse and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, this person is, is meant to represent the rebellion of man against God. Some people would say that this is Christ. Um, I, I would have to disagree with that. The crown given to him is not the Greek word diadema. Uh, it's a 
Stephanos. Uh, it's a laurel crown. Uh, now, of course, you know, one might say, well, Jesus has a right to that crown too. Okay. But uh, it is not using the exact same language in Revelation 19 because they'd say Jesus is on a white horse in Revelation 19. This has got to be the same guy. But there are points of difference here. Um, in Revelation 19, he's got a sword coming from his mouth. He's described as the word of God, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Um, here it says the person has a bow, but it leaves out any reference to arrows. And while that in and of itself may not be very significant in light of the context of Daniel nine and in the book of Daniel in general, the antichrist is seen as one who by flatteries seeks to deceive people. And so he, he comes in promising peace and then he captures people that way through deception. And so given that he has a bow, but no arrows, he comes offering peace. Okay. He comes, you know, offering a covenant with the Israelites. He comes offering to solve the world's problems. And so again, all of this, it fits the bill of the Antichrist. He also sounds very similar. Um, going back to the book of Genesis, he sounds similar to Nimrod. Nimrod means rebel, and he is the ultimate type of the Antichrist. He was a one-world ruler. Uh, he instituted a one-world religion at Babel. And so we have the ultimate Nimrod, who is got this bow like hunters do, and Nimrod's called the mighty hunter before the Lord, and he comes conquering first and foremost through diplomacy. Now, that dis diplomacy does fail because we see the next horse is a red horse representing war. So eventually, war is going to happen no matter how much uh, the Antichrist claims he's going to bring in some utopia. Okay, All of those things that he promises, they're going to fail. But um, it seems that he comes... Uh, conquering first through diplomacy, and like Nimrod, he's seen as the chief rebel. I think that's odd when you said that. Uh, people think that because uh, this describes the rider on a white horse, and then Jesus on the white horse in chapter 19, Satan is an imposter. Right. Yes, and absolutely. So mm -hmm. And that's mimicking or impostering as the Messiah. That's right. Who's going to come as or say that he is the Messiah. He's come to save the world. Yes, yes. I mean, the similarity between the two, like you said, it makes sense given that the Antichrist is going to try to imitate the, the true Christ. Another thing, though, is who's, who's standing in heaven right now opening the scroll? Jesus is, okay? So this stuff's happening on earth. And so unless one takes the symbolism, you know, too far, in my opinion, in this case, uh, this would have to be somebody who is on earth, someone that God is sovereignly in charge of, someone that God is um, using to accomplish his purposes, because who's opening up the scroll? Again, it's Jesus. So this person has no power okay, in and of themselves. It says that a crown was given unto him. So the reason this person is able to go forth conquering is because the Lord Jesus Christ opens the seal from heaven. He has that authority. But uh, since Christ is in heaven while this is happening on earth, I think that we can rule out that this is a reference to Jesus. And if he's not Jesus, then he's the Antichrist. That's the only other candidate. Uh, there are some interesting things to point out about all this. Okay, but before we do, the main principle that I want to take away from this myself as I read it, and I want you all to take away from it, is no rebel is ever truly independent of God. And that's the first point. No rebel, people like Nimrod, people like the Antichrist, or anybody... No one's really independent of God. It says in Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to man. But it's the way of destruction. Yeah, absolutely. God was in charge of that situation. 
with Pilate and with the Jews, and uh, they did their best to try to silence Jesus and put an end to him, but it all played into his hand. And so no rebel is truly independent of God. Yes, uh, what the Antichrist is doing is inexcusable. Okay, he's a blasphemer. His blasphemies are only going to grow as the tribulation progresses. Uh, The Lord Jesus doesn't approve of that. But since the Antichrist is going to do this, since he chooses it of his own volition and own free will, Jesus accomplishes his plan through it. And it's very comforting to think that even though evil seems often to get the upper hand, God's on the throne and he's doing what he's doing here all the time. He's ruling over the nations all the time, not just when the tribulation happens. He's accomplishing his purposes now um, as well as in the future. And so he uses war to accomplish his purpose. And that's the next point. So I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but um, God is able to use even the rebellion of the Antichrist to accomplish his purpose. And that purpose in this case is to judge the world and to get the attention of the world. Um, Guys, I think that the reason that the judgment of the tribulation takes place gradually is because God is offering people a chance to repent. And as people look at the word of God and as they see these events happening before their very eyes, just as the Bible has long foretold, especially in the context of the rapture, all these people disappearing, and this person rising up and Christians who come to the light at that point, preaching this and showing this to people. I think that God is trying to, you know, shake people out of their complacency and out of their blindness. And so God is using this judgment, yes, to put an end to evil once and for all. This is the culmination of God's judgment over the past 6,000 years. Imagine all the iniquity, all the crimes that have been perpetrated. God is pouring out his wrath even now. Uh, I would say that they don't realize it's God until the sixth seal, but he's already doing it right here. Okay, He's already pouring out that wrath and judging the earth, but he does it gradual rather than all at once because he's still waiting for people to patiently repent. And that's awesome. Uh, he's still long suffering. And that's why I, I don't have too much patience myself when it comes to people saying, ah, oh, well, if you don't believe now, you're not going to believe in the tribulation. You may not. Um, and in fact, there's going to be a really big delusion, a strong delusion that comes upon the people. So if you're not believing now, there's a good chance you won't believe then. However, there will be people who do believe. And we see that clearly presented in scripture. And so God is, again, putting off judgment that final great white throne judgment. He's putting that off because he wants people to come to him. And so I'm thankful for the tribulation. Part of me is like, let's just get it all done. Wrap it up right now, Jesus. But that's because I don't have the patience that I ought to, the patience for people to come to know the Lord, to be saved. And so uh, some observations about the Antichrist, and then we'll wrap it up. And this this is interesting too, because... uh, I do appreciate what the Gilberts, I mentioned them earlier, Derek and Sharon Gilbert, they've talked a lot about these horsemen and they try to tie them into paganism, how um, these different characters on the horses represent Greek gods. And they believe these Greek gods are actually demons in disguise, right? So they don't believe in the mythology, but uh, they would argue that these are demons that are doing these things. I I don't think so. Um, I don't think death is a demon. They would argue that like that horse, the pale horse, they would say it's Thanatos and Thanatos was a, was a God in Greek myth, but Thanatos also everywhere else in the new Testament simply means death. So I think that it's just referring to death. Okay. And, and Hades. Okay. Hades is not referring to a Greek God. 
Hades, Hades is just Hades. It's a place, right? So the, the similarity there, or the same use of words, is, is not enough for me to believe that these are actually uh, demonic entities going by the names of Greek gods. Okay, so I'm not convinced by that. But they do point something out about the Antichrist that I do think is compelling. They think that he bears a resemblance to Apollo. And that does make a lot of sense. In chapter 9, we have the devil going under the name Apollyon. Uh, Apollyon was another name for Apollo in the ancient world. Yes, and he did. He wore a, a laurel wreath, and he was known as an archer. And uh, the riding on a white horse signifies beauty. And he was seen as like the most handsome of the gods. And so this to me, along with the reference to Apollyon in chapter 9, it sounds a lot like Lucifer, the angel of light. And, and here Lucifer is at work through his son, the Antichrist. Um, clearly, the Antichrist is seen as the son of the devil, whether you take that just figuratively, which is possible. I mean, Jesus referred to the Pharisees as, you know, the sons of the devil, and that wasn't literal. Um, or in Genesis 3.15, it talks about the seed of the serpent. Okay, so it very well could be something literal. Maybe some Nephilim stuff is going on, like in Genesis chapter 6. We'll talk about that another time, but regardless of how you see it, the Antichrist is seen as the son of the devil and embodying everything the devil is. He's an angel of light. Um, he's beautiful, and he's wise, and he's powerful, but he perverts all the glory that God gave him for himself. And so we see the boastfulness of the devil. We see the boastfulness of man, which came straight from the devil. I mean, the sin of pride in man originated from the serpent in the garden. And so while we are fully responsible for giving into temptation. It all started with the devil, and the Bible makes that clear. And so I think that the idea that Apollo here um, is in view, I think that it really makes a lot of sense. People who are reading this would have looked up to Apollo. A lot of Greek pagans would have. And to take Apollo and say all that Apollo represents, okay, that, that pride, that, um, that beauty, you know, consider... Satan, consider Lucifer, who's so beautiful and so powerful, but yet in pride fell. And that, that, that worship of man, that humanism, really, it, it stems straight back from the devil and his fall. And I think also there might be something uh, to say about paganism making a comeback. If this is really somehow a reference to Apollo, today we see a rise in belief in pagan gods. Maybe the Antichrist will claim to have some association with pagan gods. And honestly, that wouldn't sound crazy. Given the context of things now, how paganism is becoming very popular, someone who lays claim to being a son of Apollo, okay, and Apollo being, in this case, the devil, well, that, that kind of makes sense. I can imagine something like that happening. Uh, but the Antichrist is called, in 2 Thessalonians 2, the son of destruction. And the word destruction is Apollea. So it's a perfect title form because Apollo was a god of beauty, but he was a god of destruction. But in this case, he brought destruction on others. But the term, it fits perfectly in Revelation to represent the devil having destruction brought upon him. And so this pride of man which seeks to elevate itself will be brought down. Just as the devil exalted himself to the mountain of God and he was cast down, uh, mankind and all who have followed that same path of pride as the devil 
uh, they will be humbled and brought down. And so uh, that is the spirit of the Antichrist that's been at work since the beginning of history. And uh, it's going to become even more obvious as we get closer to the Lord's return. I think the spirit of Antichrist is going to be less of a metaphor and something a lot more literal. Like the spirit of the Antichrist is the devil who is personally receiving worship in the tribulation. Worship is the dragon. And so there's going to be a lot of uh, old concepts making a comeback um, as we see them today, like the new ages and anything new. Uh, but the Antichrist uh, conquest is not just political, but it's religious as well. So I think that may be suggested by his similarity to Apollo. But um, lastly, last fact, and then we'll be done for the day because um, this is all we can cover. It's just so much. Um, war follows him. And that indicates that not all will bow before him. So right here, him rising to power, uh, going back to Daniel chapter 7. It says that he's going to pluck up three horns before him, this little horn when he rises to power. So at this point, uh, the world is behind him as he goes forth conquering, but not everybody is going to go quietly. Not er Yes, God, yes, yes. Uh, Gog, Gog, I do believe will be gone. I think that the reason that the Antichrist coming from the revived Roman Empire has so much power over the world at this point is because Gog is gone. Uh, but... There are going to be people who initially are allies of the Antichrist and they see his his power growing and they're not going to appreciate it. And that's why the war is mentioned next. So as much as the Antichrist claims to be a bringer of peace, um, his ambition is going to lead to some of the biggest uh, wars that have ever happened in the history uh, of the human race. And so we'll talk more about that later when we discuss the Red Horse, but uh, like I said, the main point to take home today, guys, is no rebels truly independent of God. All this plays right into God's hand, and I'm so thankful that uh, God is in charge, aren't y'all? That he's got everything in his hand, and we don't have to be scared about any of this because um, the Lord is standing for his church. He's standing for his children. But with that, God bless, and uh, we will pick up next week where we left off. Bye.